You're listening to the 66 Podcast, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. The idea is to survey the books and to give you a general understanding of what's going on. And today we are in 1 Thessalonians again, and we are in chapter 2. So it's our second episode on this uh, brief letter of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And Drew, as you laid it out for us last week, the first part of the book is about Paul's time with the Thessalonians, right? Right. Kind of recalling what happened, and we went back to Acts 17 in the last episode. Yeah, that's the background. That's where you read about how the church was established. So it's the first, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's the first three chapters, right, that deal with... Yeah, I believe that's how we divided it up. I would have looked that up if I knew there was going to be a quiz. (laughs) Um, should ask you the break. I'm pretty sure because yeah, no, you're right. That into it's advice. And, yeah, we we split up into those two parts. Yeah, and uh, the story of Paul and the Thessalonians is is in the first three chapters. We're right in the middle of that today. Yeah. Okay. So, and I think we said just to remind us to get us focused in here. I think we said that Paul most likely writes this from Corinth, right? Yes. On that same wow. missionary trip. Yeah. So it's just maybe he he got so he uh, he started going south. You can think of it this way: um, he went to Berea to get away from the uh, persecution mm-hmm. in Thessalonica, and right. from Berea he just made his way south through Athens. That great sermon yep. he preaches in Acts seventeen on Mars Hill mm-hmm. or the Areopagus, however your yep. translation puts it. That was in part of this, and and finally he meets up with Timothy again in Corinth, which is down at the bottom of the Greek peninsula, and that's where we think this letter was written. Okay. Yeah, so it's mm-hmm. that time frame, second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, I think that kind of helps us maybe get a good idea of what's going on, maybe historically, but also in Thessalonica. So these Christians are pretty new. You mm-hmm. know, it hasn't been very long. That's exactly right, and that's kind of what what we're going to look at today is how they're going through some growing pains. And, you know, last episode we talked about the the beginning of the church at Thessalonica and the concept of a healthy church. And this kind of goes along the same lines. We're going to call this episode Growing Pains because we're going to see a picture here of the development of a church, the proper development of a church, especially one that is facing some opposition and persecution in their particular location. So this First Thessalonians 2, we're going to see the growing pains of the church at Thessalonica. And uh, we'll just divide it up this way. And we're going to see the progression here as they grow. And it starts with the infancy of the church at Thessalonica in verses 1 through 8. Uh, I'll read the first two verses here. He says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That goes back to the history we were reading from Acts chapter 17. Uh, our listeners might want to go back to that and refresh their memories you know, it, he only got to stay there with them three weeks. So they were very much in the infancy stage when Paul and the others had to had to leave because of the persecution there. Uh, Paul and the others, you know, went out of their way to prove that their motives were sincere 
while they were there, and that concerns verses 3 through 8. He points out a number of things that he did not do. Uh, Their appeal did not spring from error, verse 3. Their appeal did not come from impurity, verse 3. Also in verse 3, it didn't come from any attempt to deceive. Uh, They didn't have any impure motives. It did not come, they did not come to please man, he says, but to please God, verse 4. They didn't use words of flattery, verse 5. They had not been greedy, verse 5. They did not seek glory from people, verse 6. So they could have, but uh, Paul did not impose demands upon them as an apostle of Christ. He says in in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. There's going to be a question there of who is included in that word apostles. Right. You know, I think we talked about saving that for the next segment. Mm -hmm. So you can see all kinds of things here. And what they did do is very impressive. You can see how... He describes himself in verses 7 and 8, which is a very unusual description that Paul uses. He says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So a matronly description of himself towards them kind of lends itself to this imagery of the infancy stage of development. Mm-hmm. So let's move from there through the growing pains to the second stage of development. We'll call this the childhood of the church at Thessalonica. And in it, you'll notice that Paul switches from being from describing himself as a mother to a father. Uh, this is verses 9 through 12. We'll read a few verses here. He says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory." So like a father, he was working night and day. He was working to set an example by showing him the conduct that was, he says, holy and righteous and blameless. Uh, He used his influence to exhort them, uh, to encourage them, uh, to charge them. These are very fatherly things that that he was doing. And uh, some of this may be a response to critics spreading rumors that he had come to Thessalonica to make money from preaching the gospel. You know, he mentioned earlier that he didn't come from a motive of greed. And here he seems to be pointing out that he, you know, pointed he points out his labor and his toil. He didn't want to put any financial burden upon them. Yeah. So he's answering critics, but in doing that, he's kind of representing a father working for growing children. It's kind of how he pictures himself here. So now we see the the church developing here from infancy to childhood. And I realize that this, you know, progression here is a little forced. What I'm pointing out is different aspects of the same church, probably in a short period of time. So it's a little forced. But if we look at the language that he's using, there is a progression here. And so what we're seeing here is his treatment of them more like children than than infants. They're growing. He is working harder. And, um, now I've got the mothers after me. I didn't mean that fathers work harder than the mothers. <laughs> uh, but they, his work is changing as they are maturing. How about that? Yeah, I think that's what he's saying in the language here, right? It says nursing you like a mother. So he's using that aspect of motherhood. 
Yeah. Uh, and then when he gets to talking about being a father, he's talking about exhorting them and encouraging them and charging them to do things. So he's focusing on, not to say these are the only attributes <laughs> attached. See, both of us are like. Not that these are the only attributes yeah. attached to motherhood and fatherhood. So not to say every father is only like, you know, like an authoritative Encouraging, figure. exhorting, and charging. Yeah, and like a mothers can't, And not to say mothers can't or don't do that. They do. Right. But. You know, um, just he's focusing on different aspects. Yeah, he's using different language here and pressing the point too much. But um, anyway, so you have the infancy stage, childhood stage. Let's move on to the next one before we say more things that are incriminating. Yeah, let's let's go ahead. Um, Verse thirteen. The good thing is our wives (laughs) never listen to the podcast. That that is a plus. Uh, We can okay. Uh, (laughs) Progression as we move through the progression, stage three, the adolescence. Of the church at Thessalonica. Let's look at it as a teenager like a grandpa now. grandpa here? Is We're not going to get that far. We're not gonna... <laughs> it's not that specific. This is the adolescence. Uh, verses 13 through 16. Uh, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. That's an interesting thought there. Yeah. A Gentile congregation imitating a Jewish congregation. Uh, and Paul has said in other places that the Gentiles could share material things with the Jewish congregations while the Jewish congregations were able to share spiritual things. There's kind of a, an exchange going on between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul uses yeah. this language a lot to try to foster unity between these two very different groups. And so he points this out, and it's another admirable quality, you know, the total lack of, of uh, if you want to call it racism or prejudice towards those churches in Judea. The, they didn't care. They saw themselves as brethren, and, and the churches in Judea more mature, so they were imitating them. He says, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So that part on the end there speaks to the persecution they were suffering. What does this have to do with uh, adolescence? Well, it's just as, as, we, as we grow, we have to start making our own decisions have to start spreading our wings and growing stronger and asking important questions. And the questions they were trying to decide were, you know, is is the Bible the word of men or is it the word of God? Yeah. You know, he says they accepted it as the word of God. Uh, will I follow good influences or will I follow bad influences? They decided they would follow after the footsteps of the churches in Judea. Am I willing to suffer for a higher purpose? They decided, yes, this is worth suffering for. Mm-hmm. And nobody can answer those kinds of questions for you. When you start to mature and you get to be, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, you start facing these things at school or, you know, out in the world as you start to spread your wings, even at church. And uh, those questions, even if you stayed in a bubble, as your mind developed and your mind, you grew more mature, you'd start asking these questions within yourself. Yeah. And so you see that in the church at Thessalonica, and it reminds me, at least, of of an adolescent stage of the church and their progression. More growing pains. 
Yeah. All right. Ready for the last one? I'm ready. Okay. This we'll call the independence of the church at Thessalonica. I hesitate to label it adulthood okay. because, I mean, this church is only a few months old probably, maybe a year old, but they are independent of Paul whether that was by choice or not. So he says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. So Paul wanted to be with them, but he was torn away from them. And the language there is very emotional. takes us back to the image of a mother and a father. But unlike a mother and father of, of young children... He is not with them, not able to be with them, and still they're doing fine. He shows his expectation to see them in heaven one day if he's not able to be reunited with them this side of eternity. That's the independence that everybody's hoping for as a parent, you know, that one day their children will be able to function on their own. And uh, that's the goal that every missionary has for the churches that he works with and, and plants and establishes. That was Paul's goal with the churches at Thessalonica. So... Just as review, this progression of the growing pains of a church starts out with infancy, uh, verses 1 through 8, then childhood, verses 9 through 12, the adolescence, 13 through 16, and finally, the independence of the church. Brother Andrew, will you lead us through this next segment, please? Are we recording already? Yeah, we are. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I don't know recording. why I was doing Jeff Sessions there. Well, but. yes, I can. Uh, what are what are we doing? We're still doing First Thessalonians, right? Um, yes, <clears throat> chapter 2. Still in chapter 2. Okay, I got a couple, couple things to think about here. Really a couple questions for you. The first one. What is the Inquisition today? I mean, what do you mean, Inquisition? Firing these quiz questions, one right after the other. I just have a quiz an, bowl. I have an inquisitive mind. Do I have a buzzer? We need some buzzers back here. Or yeah. at least like a sound effect. Somebody to compete with. Buzzer sound effect. Every yeah. time I have a question, I can just push it. I can get a soundboard up on my phone. I'll do that later. Ask your question. Uh, question, verse 6 of the second chapter. Paul says... We did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. I think he's talking with glory there. I think he's probably talking about money, taking payment. Kind of, you know, like worthy of double honor thing with the elders. Or or something that includes that and more. Recognition, honor. So the question, though, does not lie there. It lies in... The he demands, says, right? Well, the demands, demands as apostles. I'd love to address the demands. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then after that, uh, the apostles of Christ, uh, and you see in verse one I'm of sure chapter that's not one, just apostle, just singular. Yeah, apostle. unless there was a typo in the ESV Bible, I'm looking I think at you here. Ate your lunch over that page, and yeah, 
There's a stain that looks like an S. Maybe so. I actually did skip lunch today, so I was <laughs> had a late breakfast brothers in town. He's a college student, so he slept in. But anyway, mm-hmm. we digress. So in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, or Silvanus uh, and Timothy, are the ones who are present when this letter is being written. Now when it gets over here, he's using that first-person plural. We could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So that apostles, uh, well, I let think me, attaches back. Let me challenge one thing that you said. Okay. I don't think it necessarily follows that because... Paul, Silvanus, or Silvanus, and Timothy are in the address of this letter, that that's the antecedent to the pronoun we in, what verse? Verse 6. I mean, I, I it may have been because they certainly accompanied him on a second missionary journey. Yeah. Um, but I think what he's talking about there, the antecedent to the pronoun we has to be the missionaries who were in Thessalonica. I know that doesn't help me any in this question, but it, yeah, because they might the even include more people, you know. But yeah, I think the ones that come from Philippi in verse two, I guess, is the antecedent when he says we had already suffered in Philippi and been shamefully treated, and then they come to Thessalonica. So that yeah. we has got to include whoever is with them in that group back from Philippi, you know, in Acts chapter sixteen. And you've got everybody but Luke, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and maybe who else, anyone else that's with them um, when they get to Thessalonica. Mm-hmm. Those are the major players, Paul, Silas, Timothy. Uh, Luke is not with them in Thessalonica. That's true. Yeah. Um, and I. So here's, here's what I'm thinking. You can tell me this thinking is, is good thinking or not. So apostle, we know apostle can refer to those 12 apostles, obviously, that were selected by Christ himself when he was on earth. These 12 are capable of healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, that sort of thing. Um, you know, Matthias replaced Judas in Acts chapter yeah. 1. Um, and this is, the most commonly, these are the group that are referred to as apostles. Uh, now, according to a like a Jewish background of the term apostle, this is somebody sent by God to accomplish a certain task, basically, like a special messenger with a special status that enjoys an authority and commission that comes from some kind of body higher than himself. Um, but it does seem like that apostle could also refer to a group of, and for lack of a better term, I'm going to say second tier and that's probably not the best term but just a very crude just to get the idea out so we can talk about it second tier group um barnabas i think might be included in this group he is called an apostle like we mentioned in the break you you brought up those hmm. acts 14 i think where yeah he's i was looking for that i i i just no, had it i just had my finger on it uh Paul was, or Barnabas was called an apostle somewhere down in the episode. Yeah, verse 14. So this is Luke writing this. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? And that's when they're in Lystra. Oh, yeah, there it is. And they're worshiping him. 
uh, when they're worshiping the two of them as Zeus and Hermes, right? Yeah, Zeus and Hermes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's likely that there's another like category of apostles because all over the place in Paul's letters, especially in Galatians, you find him kind of arguing his status as an apostle. Yes. He's saying he's an apostle commissioned by God, not commissioned by men. And he's trying to make the claim at the beginning of Galatians that he's like on par uh, with Peter, James, John, those apostles, because he received his revelation from Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So Jesus called him to be an apostle, not the apostles. So the mm-hmm. church didn't call him. The church didn't lay, you know, put him aside and select him to do this work. God himself chose him just as God chose the other 12, including Matthias. So it does seem like Barnabas and Silas and possibly Timothy here are included. They're given this designation. So there's a couple options, I think. Either we're saying that Timothy and Silas are included in this other category of apostles who maybe are commissioned by the 12 or commissioned by the church you know, set aside to do a certain work, which Barnabas absolutely was, and Silas absolutely was as well. Silas, if you'll remember, was sent back to Antioch after the Jerusalem Council uh, in Acts 15. Silas is one of the guys that goes back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas mm-hmm. to tell them the news about what they had what they had spoken about in Jerusalem. So Silas had already been selected by the church to, to do a certain work. So they might have been apostles in a more general sense. So what we're saying, what I'm trying to build the case for here is that apostles may be, yes, obviously it includes the 12, but here when we have Barnabas you know, in Acts 14, and then here where possibly Timothy and Silas are being referred to as apostles, mm-hmm. here there's a broader you, you sense. You can add to that James, the brother of the Lord, right. Galatians 1. Yeah, that's right. And... There are hint with with James. There are hints of it, like First uh, Corinthians fifteen, James. I mean Galatians one. Um, so that's another one. So I think I got. So let me. Okay, go ahead. Let me summarize the whole thing. So the word apostle is translated from a Greek term apostolos, and that word is used in other places just to refer to a person who has been sent. Yeah, and then sometimes it's trans, it's just transliterated into a word apostle. Doesn't it mean like one who is sent or a yeah, sent one? One sent, like yeah, yeah, a sent yeah. one, one sent, not one, not like a penny. Yeah, but one, one who has been sent. Yeah. Uh, other words are similar to this. I think a, a very a good analogy to this is the word diakonos, which is yeah, generally right. translated servant, but it has a special sense, deacon. So there is a general and a special sense of the word apostolos. The general sense is a person who has been sent out by a church, by an eldership, by the Lord himself. I I wish I had it in front of me, but I believe that word is used with reference to Jesus yeah. also. And nobody argues for Jesus being an apostle. But then yeah, it definitely true. has a special sense where you have the lists of the apostles to be distinguished from disciples in all four gospel accounts. Right. Um, I think Acts 15 is interesting because you have a distinction made in the Jerusalem church leadership between apostles and elders. Uh, you can look at Acts 15:23. The brothers, both both the apostles and the elders. 
So James, I would categorize among the elders in that, um, and the apostles were others who are unnamed, uh, like Peter, probably, yeah. there in Jerusalem. Uh, so, you know, I would contend that the reference to them as apostles in, you know, we're talking about Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, or Paul, Timothy, and Silas and company in First Thessalonians 2, are, is using the term apostle in a general sense to refer yeah. to people who've been sent out. They're on a mission trip, so it's perfectly yeah. acceptable usage of the term. Okay. Um, another thing that you know we need to talk about is why that's even an important debate, because I think our listeners are saying, "So what? Who cares?" Okay. Yeah. What's you know the more the merrier. Let's put Barnabas and let's put James, the brother of Jesus, and let's put Timothy and Silas in that list, and let's have all kinds of apostles. Mm-hmm. And why was Paul, you know, defending his apostleship? What did it matter? Yeah. Um, and I had to think about that myself too. You know, when you said we might talk about this, I was thinking. Well, you know, is this even important? Is this something we should even worry about? Uh, you got any ideas? I've got I've got one answer to that. I'd just like to know what you think. Well, I think it you know, there's a couple different a couple different concerns here. So if, you know, Barnabas and um, Silas and Timothy are included as apostles you know, I guess we'd have to assume that they met those same qualifications that are over in the Gospels about, you know, having uh, having been with him, that or being seen, Jesus, yeah, having seen been with Jesus mm-hmm. while he was here, and then having You're seen... You're getting this from Acts 1, right? Acts 1, yeah. Where they're um, seen the appointing Christ. Matthias. Right. This is given by Peter, I think. Right. It's just interesting that, you know, they replace Judas with Matthias so they can have 12. Well, if they start adding a lot of other people... A witness to his resurrection. Yeah, witness to the that's resurrection. A, that's an important that's thing. Which is how Paul gets into that category because Jesus... Right, but the word witness years. doesn't mean like you and me, uh, we, we believe in the resurrection. It means right. that they saw Jesus yeah. after he died. Right. They saw exactly. a living Jesus after he had died. Right. So that that eliminates a lot of people from the possibility of being an apostle in the special sense. Right. Okay, so go on. I'm sorry. I'm just so wondering. I think well, no, no, I'm glad we well, I'm glad we um, we specified that. Yeah, sure because that gets that. Paul it was different with Paul, but you know, mm-hmm. on the road to Damascus he saw the risen Lord. Yeah. And there and he goes to great lengths to tell that story in Acts. Luke tells that story in chapter nine. Yeah. Paul tells it twice in Acts twenty two, Acts twenty six. Yeah. Well and there was also Joseph Barsabbas Justice, that guy that has three names with Matthias. Yeah. And they people always forget about yeah, that guy. And they wind up choosing Matthias. So in my mind, this is a special designation for these twelve. Paul's added because Christ himself goes and gets him. But if Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, and all are added, is that to say apostolic succession is a right. thing? So right. I think it is important. Because that's a second generation of apostles who have not seen the risen Lord so far as we know. Right. And that means and that, that opens a gifts, can of worms. The gifts keep getting passed down. Right. The healing, prophecy, casting out demons, And the revelation can continue to be progressive instead of whatever is non-progressive. Right. Once and for all. So it, I think. So it's I very want to make important. sure our listeners understand what we're saying. The stakes yeah. are pretty high. If you open yeah. that word up to include 
without any, you know, if it does include those men, then we should include it, of course. But if we have no other evidence than what's before us and we just flippantly say, oh yeah, let Barnabas in, let Timothy in, who cares? Then modern day apostles can stake their claims on that and they can claim to continue to pass down miraculous spiritual gifts and new revelation, which is being done in certain religious groups that we'll leave unnamed right now. But, you know, that's a big difference. If you say Paul was the last true apostle because he's the last one to have seen the risen Lord, then he and, you know, a handful of others only were able to lay their hands on people and impart spiritual gifts, which means when Paul and the others passed away, the spiritual gifts passed away, which is the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Right. Okay. And then also that means that the the revelation of Jesus Christ, the New Testament, ends at the 27th book of the New Testament, and it did not continue to be received in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries, even unto today. Yeah. No. So I, I think the stakes are pretty high on this apostle question, and it's important for us to talk about. Yeah, definitely so. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. I had in mind that apostolic succession question. Yeah. When I Which is an official up. term. You know, that's a term that's used a lot in Roman Catholicism. But yeah. uh, this problem goes beyond Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, and apostolic succession is, uh, well, that's a different that's a different thing, too, in, yeah. than just what we're talking about. But anyway. Yeah. Um, we ready to move on to the next one? Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I know our more. listeners are. Yeah. You and I are having fun. We're the only ones having fun here. I got one more. Uh, this comes at the end in verse 18 where Paul's talking about wanting to come see them again. It says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So... This is familiar in the book of Acts with like supernatural hindrance, I guess, because Paul earlier, the way he winds up in Macedonia, even back in, it's in chapter 16, right? Yeah, in chapter 16 of Acts, Paul wants to go into Asia, but he's forbidden by mm-hmm. the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Then he wants to go into Bithynia. Or Bithynia. I'm not really sure how to say that. Bithynia. Bithynia. I'm just going to leave you hanging on that one. Yeah, there we go. I don't know. And he can't go. The Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow him to go there. So it's kind of familiar. But it didn't say Satan, though. Yeah, but I'm I'm talking about... Supernatural prevention, whether it's good or evil. Yeah. So how does that work? And so we can say, you know, from the book of Acts, that, you know, the Holy Spirit hindered him. That's it. Like, we don't know how he did it. So... Mm. He could have done that through natural means, like, or he could have, he definitely could have spoken to Paul and told him. So when we get to, there are a lot of little visions in Acts. Yeah, you know, like uh, the Macedonian calls one. Macedonian call, which yeah. is in that context, and then yeah. is it chapter twenty-three where Jesus stands by him and says that he will see Rome somewhere in there. We don't yeah. have to look that up, but yeah. another like one verse vision, which is so yeah. different from what we've been studying in Ezekiel, by the way. Ezekiel, yeah, right. Like, you know, it's, yeah, it's like. Four, five chapters of <laughs> confusion. Yeah, and Luke just boils it down for us. Yeah. He saw yeah, a guy saying, yeah. come over and help us. Yeah. The end. That's great to know. So um, you have that, but aside from that, we don't really have it spelled out for us how Satan is doing this or how 
the Spirit was doing this in Acts. Yeah. So the question, I guess the natural question for me is, when I read Satan hindered us, and what are we talking about here? Like, is Satan like, you know, it's like those movies, like Paranormal Activity, where there's like an invisible something, like grabbing onto somebody and pulling them. You know, like he wants to go back, but he's got somebody holding him back. Or yeah. My legs won't work when I try yeah. to move in the direction of Thessalonica. Yeah. So I... And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, this is probably getting into some speculation and opinion here. Here's my idea. Earlier in verse 16, he talks about, he's talking about the Jews in Thessalonica. And he says, they have hindered us from being able to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, the Jews are giving him a hard time. They are even following him from one place to another. Yeah. To try to get him imprisoned and basically just let's get rid of him. We're tired of Paul doing this. Let's just let's stop him from preaching about Jesus. Let me let me just say, you know, okay. the Jew we mean the Jews who did not accept the gospel. Correct. You know, so the ones uh, that were you know, a certain a certain branch of, of the Jews. Just Yes. Just in case somebody thinks we're being Oh, I'm, I'm not saying ethnically. It's, yeah, it's, I'm not saying Jews are represented. Yeah, I know you're Satan. not. I know. Yeah, you're not. I'm talking about in this specific instance at this time and place. Because yeah, Paul not himself a, was a Jew, and right. You know, these are the people who didn't accept Paul's belief that Jesus was the Jewish fulfillment of the right. Messiah. Yeah, it wouldn't matter if these people were were Jewish or not. Like the Right, uh, right, yeah, yeah. This is just the fact that they are the ones hindering him. So when you read about the founding of that particular church in Thessalonica, the ones that cause Paul and Timothy and Silas to have to leave the city are those Jews that are jealous, and they take some of the wicked men of the rabble. Can Mm. we get a quick definition on rabble? Um. People yeah. who are no good. Okay, yeah, there we go. Uh, guys, I guess we're just ready to make some trouble. They form Naysayers. a mob. Naysayers, that's good. They attack the house of Jason. Then they wind up at the end of this. So Jason and other Christians have to be taken before the city authorities. And the city authorities are upset that there's people in their city talking about another king aside from Caesar. And so the end of this is kind of... Interesting. Verse 9 in Acts 17. This is in Thessalonica now. Jason is a Thessalonian in the church. He's reading this letter when it gets to him. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. What was that money? What do you mean money as security? Well, F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Acts is pretty sure that that money was given to the leaders of the city kind of to say, hey, we're going to tell Paul and Timothy and Silas to quit telling everybody there's another king um, that's going to like take over. We're, we'll make sure that Paul and Silas and Timothy leave, and we got no more problems. And you know, there's no telling what's going on in these Christians' mind. They might be thinking, "Well, we'll just tell them Paul and Silas and Timothy leave, but we'll continue to do this." So I don't think they're they're saying to the authorities, "Never mind, we're going to stop talking about Christ," because Paul is, you know, he he says they're his joy and crown uh, in First Thessalonians. So I don't think the, Seth, the Thessalonians are backing off, but probably just for the sake of preserving Paul and the lives of everybody in the city, maybe, um, they give these authorities payment 
like we said, FF Bruce is pretty sure that was to say, okay, we'll we'll compromise here, I guess, and we'll let Paul and Timothy and Silas leave. Um, but I don't and think then when they, they are sure that Paul is gone, they give the money back to Jason, or that's what they told him at the time. Probably that's what it looks like, yeah. or that's what Bruce writes in his commentary. Yeah, and Bruce actually comes back to this verse in mm. 1 Thessalonians two eighteen and says, "This is what he's talking about." Hmm. So Bruce, so thinks that's he's got not it a supernatural out. interpretation of Satan. He's probably a, Satan. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, that's just interpreting the word Satan here to refer to these people in Acts seventeen, or just say his Satan is using that opportunity to keep him out of mm-hmm. Thessalonica. Yeah, but I would say that's a non-supernatural yeah. or yeah. a natural interpretation. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, yeah that's, what I'm, uh, that's what I'm getting at here. Well, I mean, that's that's what you're saying. I, I agree. I don't know if it's that particular thing. It sounds good to me, but I, I don't think it's Satan personally, uh, supernaturally doing this, the way that he might have affected Job or... Yeah. Other examples like, you know, Eve in the book of Genesis. And in fact, I think it's very important to draw a distinction between the activity of Satan before Jesus died and the activity of Satan after Jesus died, including demon possession. I mean, there is mm-hmm. a definitely there's definitely a ratcheting up of demonic power mm-hmm. around the lifetime of Jesus Christ and then after the cross it it fades out pretty quickly. The last known reference to me being Acts chapter 19. Uh, you don't read, you know, of you know demon possession thing in the letters of Paul. Yeah. Um, you don't see that. And I think it's because of these concepts that I, I want to share, you know, with our listeners from Colossians and Hebrews. Here's Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he's talking about the cross, the crucifixion. Rulers and authorities are known references to angels or demons or both. So he dis- Yeah, I've got a footnote there that says probably demonic rulers and authorities. Okay. So Jesus disarmed the demonic authorities when he died on the cross and he triumphed over them yeah. through his death. Hebrews 2 says this, uh, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, so he destroyed the devil on the cross. And that word destroyed, you know, not literally annihilated him, but took him out of commission. There's some symbolic things we could point to in Revelation, but I'm not going to go there today. I'm just going to put the theory out there. Actually, I don't think it's a theory. I think it's more sure than that. The fact, the biblical principle, that the devil was taken out of commission when Jesus died on the cross. I mean, this goes back to the very first Messianic prophecy in Genesis 3.15, which says right. you know, that the devil is going to deal a non-fatal blow to the heel of the Messiah, and the Messiah will deal a fatal blow to the head of of the serpent, which is Satan. So when does that happen? That Everybody agrees that happens on the cross. Well, if he took him out at the cross, then the devil is working only through his agents or through his influence, through his lies that are still being circulated around. Not personally 
you know, sitting on our shoulder with an angel on the other shoulder, yeah. whispering things into our ears, or you know, looking through our windows at night, waiting for an opportunity to pounce. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people have that image of Satan, and this is you know a way to kind of challenge that idea with some some passages. We don't have enough time to get really deep into it, yeah. but I thought. I thought it was an interesting question. I agree with you and with F.F. F. Bruce that this is, you know, using the terms. Now, it's not to say that it's not his power or his influence, but these mm-hmm. people are working on his side. That's what he means. Yeah. The people who kept Paul out of Thessalonica thought they were doing God's work. Yeah. And Paul is making it very clear that he's on God's side. They are on the wrong side. They are on Satan's side. Right, And I think the Thessalonians knew exactly who he was talking about, and that's why it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail no. for us. But it's pretty plain, unless you go into this with this preconceived notion that the devil is still personally active and walking yeah. around on earth, and, you know, he he visited Paul in Corinth and, you know, all this stuff. If you go into it with that idea, you might walk away thinking with a supernatural interpretation. But I think it's pretty clear Yeah, the context. He just says, you know, I want to come back. Basically, I want to come back, but I can't. I've wanted to come <laughs> back, but I haven't been able to. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And why hadn't he been able to? Well, because he probably is not allowed back in the city because of what happened last time he was there. Okay, so we want to make sure we get some good application from chapter 2. There's so much here we could apply, but since we only have about 10 or 15 minutes left, we're just picking our two favorites here. They might not be the two best lessons, but they're just the two that we wanted to talk about. So um, we're going to go ahead and get right to them. The first one that stuck out to me was the fact that they are called... Um, imitators of the churches in Judea. And that's in verse 14. You brothers became imitated of the imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And I think it's interesting that, you know, in our last episode, we noticed the fact that they were an example to the other churches in Macedonia, which would be so far at least Philippi and Berea. You know, they mm-hmm. stopped off at those other churches in Macedonia, or other churches, the other cities in Macedonia, was it Amphipolis and Apollonius, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say they did anything while they were there. They might have. We don't know. Um, but either way, so the church in Thessalonica is following the example of some of the churches in Judea. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the churches in Macedonia and the churches in Achaia, which includes Corinth, Mm-hmm. Um, and Athens was in Achaia too, wasn't it? I think. You know, no, technically uh, Greece. Okay. Which um, we conflate into one thing these days. No. Uh, back then there was this isthmus <laughs> no. uh, that separated the upper part of the Grecian peninsula from the lower part. So you had Greece, and then you had uh, Achaia, and Athens was in was in Greece and Corinth and Achaia. Okay. And probably some other churches yeah. too. But. So all around there, it's interesting to me that that part of the world, which 
at this time, you know, is, is pretty far away. It's a pretty good journey to get back over mm-hmm. to Judea. So you have the church that's way over here. So if you're looking at this on a missionary journey map, like you've got Thessalonica over here almost on the far west, and uh-huh. then Judea's back, you know, on the far east of the map. Mm-hmm. So you've got the... Different continents. Yeah, different basically. continents of the world. The church Europe, looks the exact same. Yeah. And that's, I think that is a huge application for me that the churches in Macedonia and Achaia look just like the churches that are over in Judea, regardless of who's in them. So there's Gentiles and Jews in all these churches together, people from all kinds of different backgrounds, mm-hmm. different stations yeah. in life, different amounts of money. A lot of the, you know, Luke is careful to mention in Acts a lot of times the leading women of the city. So there's all kinds of people who are rich, poor, Jew, Greek, Roman, everything in between. And they all are a part of these churches that look the same Mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah, it reminds me of a statement made to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He says, I'm sending you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So the reason why that unity existed was Paul. He didn't go down to Jerusalem and give them a different gospel than he took to Corinth or Thessalonica or Philippi or anywhere else. He taught the same gospel from one church to the next, and he taught it as gospel, as truth, as inspiration, and so they obeyed it. Now, you can look at Romans 14 and 15 and see that there were differences of opinion, but you're talking about you know, how they imitated matters of faith, and uh, I, I think that's a very important point because, you know, these days in politically correct society, we we say, well, you know, it's all right if churches have these vast differences in the way they view the nature of God or the plan of salvation or the yeah. expression of worship. And uh, these are these are really big matters that, you know, I think we should be unified on. Um Diversity only goes as far as the Word of God. You know, it, yeah. the Word determines what we can be different about, what we can be united on. And, uh, of course, that's a big discussion, but uh, the, the mm-hmm. point you make there is good. And there are all kinds of taters. You know, there's sweet taters <laughs> and commentators and imitators. Yeah, yeah that's right. So uh, That should have been our, our lesson, all yeah. kinds of taters. Right. We'll put that in the... Spectator, don't be a spectator. That's right. Or uh, (laughs) uh, I'm trying to think of another tater word. Let's get to another application. I mean, we say irritator. Yeah. We talk about how little time we have, and then we spend spend it talking about taters. Um, the end of this chapter is one of my favorite scriptures. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. I want to submit to you that when he talks about them as his glory, joy, hope, crown of boasting, he is speaking of heaven. That's the Mm. way he describes heaven. He describes heaven as the Thessalonians, and we would include other converts of Paul, other brethren of Paul, maybe even us today. Uh, the church. Heaven for Paul is the church as his hope, joy, crown of boasting, and glory. That's what heaven is to Paul. 
And the reason I say that is he uses this term we talked about in the last episode, parousia. We told you that it was going to pop up in every other chapter of 1 Thessalonians and every chapter mm-hmm. of 2 Thessalonians. And it's reference, it's... Um, you know, kind of pointed to in chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, but the word itself is not used, which refers to the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. So you see there in verse 19, at his coming, the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, that's parousia. And uh, he's talking about, you know, at the end of time. So what is going to be the glory? What is going to be the joy? What is going to be the hope? What is going to be the crown of boasting at the second coming of Christ? And if we didn't know Paul's answer here, and we were asked that question, what would we, we say? We would say, that's going to be heaven. That's our glory. That's our joy at the end of time. And Paul would say, right, but what is heaven? And most of us would say, well, it's pearly gates and streets of gold, and you know, we're all going to have a mansion over the hilltop. And you know, we go back to symbols in the book of Revelation that paint for us a very physical environment. And there mm-hmm. are debates today over... You know, will that be, will that universe look a lot like our universe now, only not contaminated and corrupt and defiled? And, and uh, you know, that we'll have an opportunity to talk about those kinds of things when we talk about other books or even later on in this book. But for right now, Paul doesn't get into like how much square footage is in heaven. He describes heaven in terms of relationships. And we'd be surprised if we made a list of how the inspired writers described heaven because. I've done that before, and I found that, you know, Peter talks about righteousness and being undefiled, and and uh, even in the book of Revelation, there's a lot more in there about the worship in heaven and the service in heaven than there is about the physical attributes of heaven. In fact, yeah. all the physical things we get are just symbols. And then here, relationships. And mm-hmm. uh, we need to talk about that more. And of course, the relationship with God is being with God. That's, that's another part of the description of heaven that you read throughout the New Testament that we overlook so many times. Yeah. And that's it's the church's fault, I think, that the world and the church alike picture heaven as the place where you can get whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you what, he's catching a lot of fish up there in heaven today. <laughs> you know, and those kinds of things. Yeah. He boy, he's playing all the golf he wants to play. He's now. Recording a lot of podcasts up there in yeah. heaven today. You know, I I know I don't want to be mean towards people who look at heaven that way. That's just not the way the Bible describes heaven. Now, um, I hesitated to bring this up, but uh, there is a film that came out several years ago, not too long ago, Tree of Life. Have you ever heard of that? Never heard of it. Terrence Malick is the director of that. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's got Brad Pitt in it and Sean Penn, oddly enough. And it's a movie... It, as it turns out, the movie's about heaven, and mm. I don't want to spoil it. First of all, let me say it's um, it's it's very long, and many people would view it as being very boring, okay? Because it yeah. takes its time, but if you can make it to the end of it, it describes heaven in terms of relationships, which I really appreciate that point of view, because I don't know if I've ever seen it well, I'm sure I've seen it in ways, but it's certainly not the way Hollywood would describe heaven yeah. on average. And uh, so Terrence Malick, I just I think the art of that film is worth a look. Um, it is long. If anybody nearby me wants to borrow it, I have it on Blu-ray. <laughs> I bought it for $2 at a library. Okay. 
Um, well, if it's one of these boring movies, you know, I'm probably not going to be able to Well, if a library it. is getting rid of it, that means there's not a whole lot of interest in yeah. it. Um, but anyway, it, it's a pretty good movie. So that's about all the time we got today, Andrew. Did you get all of uh, Chapter 2 out of your system? I think so. And well, I think I have too much coffee in my system. I'm sitting Uh-oh. here about to explode You are right spinning now. in that revolving chair. You're yeah. Just, you can't be still. Yeah, I've had too much coffee. It's like working with a seven-year-old. I'm going to go run a lap <laughs> after this. Yeah, well. That's why we need the playground out here. It's for me to get rid of my Yeah, that's what that's what we need it for. Right. Um, thank you to our listeners for joining us for reasons we don't understand. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are, we are really enjoying First Thessalonians <laughs> and hope that you are too. Hope that you get new things out of it. And we love some feedback. We haven't had time to... To say this uh, lately, but we have a little time here uh, to mention our website, the66.net. We love to see reviews and ratings on iTunes. Uh, You can go there and leave us a high rating and give us a review um, or a low rating if you feel that's justified. (laughs) It's perfectly okay. It's America or wherever you are. Um, Also, uh, follow us on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you can use Twitter to post questions and uh, give feedback, listener feedback there, Facebook. Uh, just about any way you want to get in touch with us, you can do that uh, through social media or the Internet. Or you can just send a, a letter, Yeah. Um, I guess. I'm not going to get into addresses <laughs> and stuff here. And so we really appreciate you What's joining us. What's a letter? Us. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll explain it to you. Okay. It's like air. an email? Sort of. Twitter? Yes. Okay. It's a tweet. Got it. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm trying to get to my ending. Let's say, no, how do sorry. I do this? Uh, so, do chapter three. Okay, okay, here we go. We're going to talk about First Thessalonians chapter three next time on the 66. That's good. Let's keep it.